from the Psych Hub Podcast Network. Join Marjorie Morrison and Patrick Kennedy on this episode of Future of Mental Health. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. For today's episode, we had a conversation with Bill Smith. Bill has had a successful political career working in campaign management, messaging research and communications, and movement building. He is the founder and president of Inseparable and founding partner of Civitas Public Affairs Group, a value-based firm working on some of the most pressing societal challenges of our day. Bill has built his career advancing significant public policy initiatives and winning elections. Bill became aware of the impacts of mental health after a family tragedy occurred, and he saw how inaccessible mental health care for children, teenagers, and their families really is. He decided to use his experience in politics to fight for the future of mental health through a coalition called Inseparable. We discussed what Inseparable is and how it is working on bringing mental health support to schools and creating spaces for children and adolescents to come forward about their struggles. Our conversation was very insightful. And we're going to take you behind the scenes of what we do to get our leaders and communities involved. I really hope you'll enjoy it. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you. There's a lot for us to learn today about Inseparable, about you, about how you got into this whole jungle of a mess of a place we call mental health. It's not really. It's slowly untangling. In our conversation with you before we sat down, you said things are getting better. I'd love to just start by maybe telling our listeners a little bit about, like, just a little bit about you and past, your history, and kind of how how we got there. Sure thing. I grew up in rural Alabama and right out of college started working on campaigns and elections, you know, flying all over the country, filming ads for candidates and campaigns. And I'm the youngest of three And uh, while I was sort of bouncing all over the place doing politics, my older brother uh, was suffering from severe depression, was diagnosed uh, with bipolar. And eventually, after a long battle, we lost him to suicide, which, as you would imagine, pretty well devastated our family. But that's kind of how I came to the mental health space as someone who was in the, the policy, advocacy, and political world, but experienced a broken system, frankly, on mental health that we couldn't get the treatment that we needed right for my brother. And I realized we're like so many millions of other families out there that have struggled with a a broken system. And so that's what brought me into this work. So for you, it was like really personal. Just deeply personal. So what's amazing is what you have done for your brother's life. Well, you know, his, his best legacy is three amazing children who have been through the unthinkable of losing a father after watching him suffer for a long time. And they're all incredible kids. But I met a lot of people after losing my brother that that had been through the same thing. And one of them said, this isn't really something that you get over. It's something that you learn to understand as a part of your life that there was sort of a time before And then something like that happens. And then there's the time after. And so it's a question of what do you do with that time? And what do you do with it? And to me, I believe we have the opportunity to make a huge difference for mental health for so many people. That's what led me to to start Inseparable. The timing of starting Inseparable is uh, really fortuitous. And 
unfortunately, because of the uh, crisis and the COVID, uh, we've we've finally paid attention to mental health. Of course, it wasn't as if mental health wasn't already at a pandemic level before COVID. But you know, the the takeaway from COVID was that it was a teachable moment. That there's no health without mental health, and that everybody got touched in some way. Uh, during the crisis and understanding how mental health factored into their lives. And of course, maybe it's not that mental health is accepted as a personal challenge to corporate America, but corporate America doesn't like the consequences of a poor, anemic, broken mental health system because it means they can't get the workers they need to do the work uh, in order to keep their companies afloat. So. Whatever the reason for this urgency, it may not have to do with all the people and the personal experiences like you've just described, but for whatever the reason, the good news is now uh, we've got the attention of the corporate community who, as you know, is now laser focused on this because they know there are implications to them not addressing the mental health crisis. And can you talk specifically about why they would care about kids if really all they're focused on or are their um, employees? Because, of course, their employees aren't kids. But tell us the connection and why, you know, making the hook on kids is actually a really good way to get employers engaged in this. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that after losing my brother I did was take kind of a journey around and talk to so many people that were working in the mental health and addiction space and interviewed clinicians and policy people, folks that were running advocacy organizations, all different types of of people. And the common thread in talking to all of them was, as Patrick said, there certainly was a crisis before the pandemic. The pandemic just kind of dialed up all the inequities and all of the, the problems that were out there. What I was looking at, though, and hearing all these brilliant people come up with all these different things that that they know would make a difference in people's lives, was that they didn't have the power to do it. And I spent about 10 years working in the marriage equality movement, where my job was to help build political power to change policies in favor of marriage equality. And I started looking at the mental health space and all of these incredible people working on it. But one thing that they didn't spend a lot of time on is building the political power it takes and the social movement it takes to change something as big as policy. And the thing that kept coming up time and time again was we treat mental health differently. We have a whole separate system. We don't think of it the same way we do everything else. And so what we said was a pretty basic premise of the health of your mind can't be separated from the health of your body. And yet that's something that we let the the public policy process do to us every day and the healthcare system every day. So that's how we got the name Inseparable. And the idea behind it was, let's go build a movement of every family that is touched by this issue in one way or another. And, you know, as Patrick was referencing with the pandemic, it was a good entry point into the conversation in a lot of ways because... I don't know a single person who hasn't experienced some form of anxiety or depression or uh, had a a child that is struggling with not being in the classroom, being separated from their friends. And even the term social distancing, right? Remember that we used at the beginning of the pandemic was to isolate 
right. each other. So it was actually a, a good moment to really step into that conversation. And one of the things that when you look at it from a systems level, you run into exactly what Patrick said, which is that employers out there are seeing, wow, people are struggling with this. It's impacting the workforce and their kids are struggling with it. If you're having trouble and then if your kids are having trouble, you're not able able to focus on work, right? And, and having a healthy workforce is is part of having a healthy society. And so I think it's all very connected. And it's why one of the things that we've been focused on is the crisis going on right now with youth mental health specifically, because that impacts not just the immediate kids and their families, but the workforce and society writ large. It really is a crazy, crazy time when you think about it. So when you like kind of piggyback on on Patrick, when you started, did you ever think that you'd come this far this fast? I don't think so. But what I did know was that there are a whole lot of families out there that are impacted by this, whose voices haven't really been in the conversation. And we started to do some research because, you know, my backgrounds and campaigns and all of that. So I love to do things like focus group and, you know, poll and talk to people and find out what's going on. And none of it was surprising that this is, you know, you just have to talk to the people in your life and to realize what an issue this is. So what we wanted to do was quickly figure out how do we talk about some of the pretty clear problems that exist and solutions that are out there for them, bring a lot of people into that conversation and also build some kind of political sophistication about how we do it so that we can move policy quickly. And I think we've tapped into that energy that's out there, frankly. And what you're talking about is really everyday people, not just leaders or business owners or politicians. You're talking about like on the ground, having conversations with everyday people that finding that these these issues touch all of us. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the telling thing for me is we launched Inseparable two years ago. You know, I was on Chris Hayes and, and did a segment talking about Inseparable and he was focused on the mental health crisis writ large. And one of the things that happened after that is people that I knew started to call and say, hey, I'm having trouble with my child on this or that. And like, I really, and one was in deep crisis and said, we've got to get a specialist right now. My child talked about taking their life last night, a 12 year old. And, you know, hell, I'm a political consultant. It's so bad as far as people getting access to care that they were calling somebody that they just knew had some connection to this issue. And you talk to people all the time. I'm, I'm sure Patrick has thousands of stories of people that understand once you're working in this space, they are so desperate to get help for the people that they love that they will reach out to anybody, even though we're not mental health professionals. And I think that speaks to this real demand that's out there. My focus is on spending time talking to policymakers and elected officials to change the system and to change the things that we know aren't working for people. But what you find is that this is an everyday kitchen table conversation all over the country. You know, Bill, I shared with you when my wife, Amy, ran for Congress this last time, as much as anyone should have a network of mental health supporters ready-made, at the ready to go, it should be me. You know, I, I know everybody in the space. I've, but, you know, I couldn't even get a mailing lists of people for whom 
the addiction crisis, mental health crisis was paramount in terms of their issue interest. My wife was also very good on the environment, obviously great on education as an educator. She was great on on so many issues. But when she needed to get a crowd, you know, those groups produced for her. You know, when she went out, they were there holding signs, organizing, donating to her campaign. But try doing that for someone who's making their campaign about social emotional learning, which is what she did. And she couldn't get anybody, which you think to yourself, well, in the midst of a pandemic, which is clearly not just a viral pandemic, but all these kids who were kept out of school, the huge impact on families in addition to those children taking away the fact that they are now dealing with greater problems because of their having been grown up with this connection to the internet and social media, which can, as you know, be very destructive to their psyches and and self-images. It's just shocking, shocking that we could not find a way to coalesce communities of like mind around the need when we talked about go back to school not just putting greater plexiglass between the kids and masking them up, but what are you going to do for their uh, the trauma that they have suffered? It's still astounding. You're right. I get it diluged for people who ask me to help them get their kids and other family into treatment as soon as they can. I can help them get that. But it's also, like you said, in this political realm, and, and what I'm so grateful to you and your leadership at Inseparables that you're really trying to build that uh, coalition, uh, which is going to be the one that helps change the system so that you and I and Marjorie aren't getting these phone calls in the middle of the night, where do I put my child? Because if we change the policy, then those questions start to get resolved because the money's in the system and the system is in place, and therefore people have less trouble getting their family member placed. That's right. You combine some of the topics where, you know, your, your mom told, told you in polite company, we don't talk politics, as uh, one of the things growing up. Wait, maybe not at the Kennedy uh, kitchen table, <laughs> right. but a lot of kitchen tables. And then you also add in the stigma that people have with mental illness. I think those are some of the factors that most people are trying to get the, get the, dinner on the table, get the kids from soccer practice. Did you do your homework? Like do hold it together. And, and there's a political system that doesn't talk to their daily lives in a lot of ways, but I think it especially hasn't on this issue. And that's where I think we have the opportunity when you say what we really want is for everybody to have the best chance to take care of themselves and their family, to have a good, healthy, happy life. If you start from that premise And then you start to talk about the things that are in the way of that and the obstacles that we put in the way with the way we treat mental health by stigmatizing it, by putting it in a separate system, by not making the conversation and resources available to people in all the places they show up in life, in school, at work, and church, anywhere you are in, in civic life. There ought to be no wrong door or no wrong place to talk about mental health and what's going on in your life. And if we can create that kind of environment, I'm convinced we can get a whole lot of people who will look to the political system and say, we're not doing this right and we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to demand that you fix the things that are broken that are keeping people from getting the, the help they need to have a good life. It's really that simple to me. 
And so what we're trying to do is build a real movement of people that get it. When you look at the polling and you look at all the research, it's one of those 90-10 issues, right? You don't get a lot of those. You get a lot of things where we're very divided, but we're not very divided over whether or not people ought to have access to mental health care or that kids ought to be taken care of and, and be in a supportive, healthy environment to learn. To me, that is the right combination to shake up the system and to demand some change. So, Bill, the idea of inseparable, terrific branding, first and foremost, it really says a lot in the, in the title. But talk a little bit, because you just mentioned like four or five different systems that ultimately will be aligned for most optimal outcomes for children's well-being. And as you know, Well-Being Trust, which we both closely affiliated with, has done terrific work in this space, they're about really understanding the integration of all of these systems. So when you say, what are the obstacles? Part of the obstacles are that these systems themselves don't interact. Forget that even within the systems, there are fragmentation. So Talk a little bit about what your vision is if we were to whiteboard a good mental health system in the future, how it wouldn't just be the domain of healthcare, that it would actually be the domain of so many other kind of systems. When you think about all the different systems, I would actually start with the healthcare system as an example, pediatricians who you take your kids to from their earliest days all the way through you know, their developing years. We make it difficult for pediatricians to talk to the kids and families about mental health. They can't get reimbursed when they talk about that. So what, what do they do? They use billing codes for things like sleep disorders so that they can get reimbursed to be able to talk to a family about what's going on with their kid that might have anxiety or depression. And that's a system, right, that is telling a, a doctor who's just trying to take care of their kids that we don't value this conversation even though it's what's going on in the life of that kid and that family. Then let's take that kid to school. And you think about where kids are in school every single day, and yet we don't talk about this very basic part of your existence, right? And so what we want to do is look at systems where you, at school systems where you have, when a kid is in trouble, there are tons of people that they can turn to that they can talk to about this, that we've educated them about from a very early age. You know, you think about when you try to uh, teach young children about emotions and being angry and sad and happy and what do you do with that? Well, then we need to start talking about, well, what's happening in your brain when that happens? And then the older they get, the more we talk to them about mental health and uh, about substance use and, and those sorts of things when it's the appropriate age. But when kids are in trouble and they need someone to talk to, we need to have actual systems in place so that we can screen them if they have a problem, connect them with someone to talk to, deliver uh, services right there where they are in school, not to go make it harder for them to get access to that. Because you think about one mom was telling me about scheduling even. She said, if you look at the calendar that my 12-year-old has, it will make your business calendar look like a joke between school and soccer and band and piano lessons and everything else. And so we actually have to do mental health at the schools because that's where the kids are. So that's one big system that I would look at. I certainly would look at the justice system. And, you know, when kids are in crisis and sometimes you have to call someone for help, 
right now we have a crisis response system that is not geared towards helping children. I think about there's a specific case in Rochester that kind of haunts me every day of a, a mom that was having an episode with her child and it got to the point where she had to call 911 because she was scared the child was going to hurt somebody or hurt herself. She ended up in the back of a police car and was pepper sprayed by the police. Like, is that like is just beyond a reprehensible answer to how to deal with a child who is having a crisis? So and then, you know, that starts moving children into the criminal justice system. Right. So there are all sorts of different ways and systems that we ought to look at and say, this isn't working. How can we transform it? How can we reimagine it? How can we think about there being no wrong door for any child in America to talk about what's going on in their life, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, to be systems in place where we show up for those kids. You make my heart smile, like just listening to you. And, and I think when I met you, I said this to you, but I'm going to say it again. There are so many people who are affected, as we've talked about, right, that these issues touch all of us. But the vast majority of us don't know what to do or we have ideas of things we want to do. You've really taken that to a whole new level and you've been so effective. And I hope that sometimes you take moments where you just can have quiet moments of pause and take inventory of how much you've done because it's really, really impressive. We think we talk a lot about this space and we interview all kinds of interesting people, but there's a lot of unsung heroes in this space that have, and Patrick's one of them too. He might be a sung hero, <laughs> not an unsung one, but, but people who will put themselves out there, be vulnerable for the betterment of, of other people. And I just needed to just take a pause in the middle of, of this conversation and just really acknowledge um, all the great stuff that, that you're doing. Well, I'm, I'm lucky to be joining a community of people who are committed to making a difference. And you know, when I started into the policy space, there's a, I asked a lot of dumb questions and, you know, I got a lot of things wrong. But as I told someone, feeling dumb in a meeting is never going to be as bad as eulogizing my brother. Once you've done that, <laughs> uh, you can figure out what you can do to make a difference. And, and, you know, Patrick is really the what I call him, the moral conscience of the mental health field, because he demand so much more of all of us and what we can be and what we should be. And, you know, I look at groups that are out there like NAMI and Mental Health America and the Kennedy Forum, and we have so many great partners that know what to do as far as the interventions that are going to help people. And, you know, if you call NAMI or Mental Health America, they can connect you to people and support groups and all of those things. One of the things that I feel like I can do and I can add is you know, based on 25 years of campaigns and elections, I know how the people who make the decisions that matter for these policies work. I know what makes them tick. And so if my contribution can be taking some of these problems that we know are out there and putting a really specific point and get them to a yes, no, we pass this policy or we don't, and connect that with what's going on in people's lives, that's how you build power and change a system. And I feel like that's my kind of piece of this is to help get us focused on how to put it in that language that uh, makes it impossible for the political system to ignore us anymore. I will always have so many wonderful people to turn to about how to do all the policy pieces, 
but I think I can help figure out how we make it where politicians can't ignore us. I appreciate the kind words. And you know, we've been friends and just am so grateful for your friendship and your kind words. And I'm moreover, just because I've seen so little advance in this space over so many years, I'm so grateful for your taking your political acumen and really use the template of the uh, marriage equality movement, which is really one of the terrific examples of mobilization and execution of a political campaign that I've ever witnessed. You know, we did a fundraiser for my colleague, uh, Seth Magaziner, who's running for a Rhode Island open seat. And uh, I had someone show up at the event who um, I didn't know. And he came up to me and said, I was an intern for you, Congressman. You first got elected. And I just want to thank you for the fact that you voted against the Defense of Marriage Act. And I'm like, he came literally 30 years after being an intern for me to this event. And he's now like a senior partner at a, a major law firm in DC. And he said to me, I got to tell all my friends that my congressman voted against Doma. And I said, Doma was a pretty low bar. Right? <laughs> you know, these days, like, People would be like, are you kidding me? Of course. But that's not true because back then it was like a big leap of faith to vote against. Now it's like we're so far beyond that. And I have to say that's because of the marriage equality movement. And you were at the forefront of that working and taking all those lessons learned on how do you get the right thinkers and policymakers in the right place? Because it's not just about policy. Personnel is policy. Talk a little bit about what you've been doing to make sure we have the right people in the right spot in order to make sure we have uh, willing and sensitive ears to the cause and the pleas that we have to bring to uh, Congress and the White House. Well, first, I have to start with the thank you for voting against the Defense of Marriage Act. Um, it wasn't always easy uh, in, the, in those days. And, uh, you know, one of the things that the, the, some of the folks on the far right who were constantly attacking and our, our antagonists in this whole thing, they would say is, wow, there's this secret gay plan to change marriage and da 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 da. Well, you know what? They were right. We did have a plan. Um, there were dozens of organizations that came together around a specific strategy that says, how are we going to win this um, fight over like a 20 year period? And it was um, it was detailed in, a, in frankly, a, a document that everyone could work from and look to and say, even if we all have slightly different tactics that we want to use or strategies, this is where we're going. And to me, that's one of the most important things for changing our approach to mental health is to have a plan and execute against it. And so seeing things like uh, the unified vision for mental health that says these are the big eight or nine policies that we want to change and have kind of a roadmap. So then what do we do is with Inseparable, we're trying to build the power to achieve that, uh, that vision that others have laid out for us. So we know that, for example, there are dozens and dozens of federal officials who you may not see in the paper every day, but they have a big role to play on the policies around mental health. And one of the things we did in the LGBT movement 
after marriage was to look at all the different federal rules and laws that impacted people's lives and kind of catalog those and then say, well, who are the people that make those decisions? It's all under the president, but there are a lot of people that matter. So we said, hey, let's take our list. Let's cross-reference it with the people who make those decisions. And then let's go get our people in those slots. And so that's one of the first things Inseparable did because we were in a presidential year with to say, well, you know, seems like uh, the winds of change are blowing and we could have a new administration in Washington. So let's make sure it's a really good one for mental health. And we knew that President Biden was already out there on the issue. He not only said the right things, he had a history of doing the right things, but we wanted him to be surrounded by people who understood our issue and and what mattered, because it's one thing to have someone that's friendly to your issue. It's an entirely different thing to have someone who's lived your issue. And so we worked with about 12 different mental health organizations to say, all right, what's all the stuff that has to get fixed? And it's a giant laundry list. But who are all the positions that matter? It's not just the, you know, who's the head of HHS. It's somebody in the Department of Labor who looks oversees how insurance companies regulate coverage and, and what's covered and what's not. It's CMS, which covers Medicaid and Medicare and how do they treat mental illness and mental health issues. We worked with the administration and said, here's a list of a lot of people. And by the way, we've done the politics for you because a lot of movements fight with themselves over, well, it ought to be uh, Marjorie or no, it ought to be Patrick or it ought to be Bill. And what we did was say, hey, here's five qualified people for the 30 positions that we think matter the most. Pick off of this list and you'll have a good administration on mental health. And to their credit, the Biden administration did that in so many instances. But part of it was us getting organized, right, and going to them and saying, we know you get this, but here are the people who really get it. And we want them in power and we want them to help move this down the field. First of all, that's brilliant. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. Personnel is policy. Just brilliant. Getting people who not just get it academically, but personally and are committed, not just to the lip service, but to walk the walk in addition to talk the talk. Just just brilliant. And fortunate to have been there in a lot of those meetings where we were putting those lists together and you are absolutely right. That's the way we get our agenda done. So uh, let me just jump on to this idea of a mental health czar. So in a perfect world, we would replicate what Office of National Drug Control Policy does, which, of course, President Biden wrote when he was a senator. And it gives veto power to the drug czar to veto any budget from any other cabinet level agency if that budget doesn't meet the requirements of the strategic vision of the, quote, administration. So in mental health, to your point that we need schools, so we need, you know, Cardona, we need housing, we need labor, you know, Marty Walsh, we need Becerra at HHS, like, but we need them all to be putting a whole laundry list to this whole point of the right people in all these different agencies, because so many of them have their own little piece to, to move forward in order to get the whole to move in the right direction. Where are we in terms of helping to put that kind of template in front of the administration? Because one thing that most of the folks who are listening and others in the advocacy world feel overwhelmed by are the enormity of our agenda, like how many things have to change 
in order to get this moving in a better direction. And so describe how it's more about how we got to get alignment. And the best way to do that is to find a way to hold all these separate agencies accountable to this bigger vision. Well, I, I think the first thing is to communicate our ambition. And the person that I channel on this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, when she got the quote and they said, how many women would be acceptable? What's the number that would be acceptable on the Supreme Court? And she said nine. And that's, that's what I want for mental health. I want the whole list. Yes, we have a big aggressive list because this is a complex issue that touches across almost every agency and every part of the government. And so, you know, one of the things that we started doing is, uh, you know, even before the administration took office was to give them, you know, the laundry list of all the things that need to happen, the things that they could do. But one of the pieces that we thought was really critical is the interagency work, which is your exact point, Patrick, of saying, how do you bring together people across all the agencies with the direction of the White House, using the power of the White House, not just the bully pulpit, but its ability to pull all of government together to address the issue? And we said we want an interagency task force, especially when we think about things like kids and schools and things that involve the health system and the education system and the justice system and the housing. All that has to come from the White House. So we pushed on that. And, you know, I was thrilled personally with the State of the Union address where the president really put mental health on the map. Hasn't happened in over 13 years that mental health was mentioned, you know, by a president in that context. You know, and the next day they he directed the cabinet to come up with guidance to make it easier to get school mental health in our school systems. And part of that is because of the advocates pushing for that. That we need to have an ambitious plan. We need to have a comprehensive approach. And it's our job, even when we say thank you, Mr. President, when he does it right, to then say, and have you also thought about X, Y, or Z? And to push, push, push that. And that's a different take than I think a lot of uh, movements have. But that's our job is to relentlessly pursue these policies, um, no matter who's in office, frankly. Bill, I wonder if like when I hear this, it's very national, but we talk so much about movements happening at the local level and in communities. Do you think there are things that listeners could take from this into their own communities? And could this, could this happen at a local level? A hundred percent. Local school boards right now, you think about all the things that are happening and they've gotten a lot of negative attention, but I think there's a positive case and a, a place where people can go and say, look, we care about the, the mental health of our kids and we want you to be dealing with these issues. So it's at the, even the very basic school board level. But, you know, one of the things that I was proud to partner with the Kennedy forum on last year, Patrick has been sounding the alarm on the abuses of the parody law that he helped pass years ago. And, you know, in Illinois last year, we passed a model parody law that said, here are the definitions of, of the services and treatments that you have to cover as part of health insurance. And here are the guidelines that you have to use and, and stop trying to get out of covering the things that people paid for in their insurance coverage, frankly. And, and it was the Kennedy Forum, inseparable, and a whole coalition of organizations that came together at the state level to pass that um, you know, we've launched the Hopeful Futures campaign, which is around school policy, which 
um, Amy and Patrick and so many others are focused on with us of what are the things we need to put in place in schools. That has a local dynamic, a state dynamic, and a federal piece. All of those are places where people can plug in and demand change and, and get involved. And that's now producing results again in Illinois. We're all doing a letter writing campaign. Bill, as you know, as we speak to the uh, uh, Attorney General of Illinois, which, of course, because of our previous work, has a law that says there's no insurer in the state can make medical necessity determination decisions without following generally accepted medical standards of care, meaning they have to do it based upon the medical indications, not based upon proprietary insurance criteria. Now that that's the state law, thanks to the work that Inseparable, about to say the Kennedy Forum were part of, that attorney general is now working with other states, by the way, including Rhode Island and our friends down south in Connecticut, which all have similar laws because of this advocacy to enjoin for on block uh, amicus against the uh, recent overturning of the Witt decision, which I know that's all very um, inside the game stuff to people. But I'm just here to say, like, we're getting sophisticated in this effort, which is really exciting. And it's because we have sophisticated organized efforts like yours to propel this that we're able to achieve so much as we speak. What's exciting right now is on the school front, we're in the Alabama legislature pushing a bill to put a mental health coordinator in every school system. We're in Delaware with a bill to bring more mental health providers to middle schools. In Illinois, we're working on uh, requiring wellness checks for kids in schools. In Alaska, uh, you know, mental health education is part of the curriculum in K through 12. Um, so it's happening across the country because we're giving people the tools to engage and to demand change. And so it's exciting to see. That's huge. That's amazing. You did your report card for the schools. So Patrick, how about if we do our inseparable report card this time next year and uh, look at the, the, I mean, those are massive uh, things to tackle. I have no doubt. I'm only saying it because I think it would be fun to be able to mark that progress from now, from a year from now. And you're right, like a, a willing administration is huge and people and getting after the people that have that lived experience and it's personal. I mean, we see it when it's personal, you really get it. You can put yourself in those, in those shoes. We focus on three big problems on the policy front. We call the first one the treatment gap. There's over 50 million Americans that need access to mental health care that aren't getting it. So success is number one, closing the treatment gap. The second piece I, I referenced, the schools, you know, we want prevention and early intervention efforts in every school in America. So that's success for me is when every child who needs access to mental health care in schools gets it. Or better yet, we've equipped them with how to talk about it before they really get into trouble because we've done mental health education. And then the third is that mental health is one of the only medical conditions we routinely criminalize in our country. So transforming our crisis response system so that people get the right response at the right time. If we can accomplish those three things, we will have transformed how we deal with mental health. There's a lot of other stuff that we can do, too, but those are pretty big ones. And, you know, having a corporate community 
and the payer community know that there are opportunities for them to show um, how they can help us build out this system. So, you know, you know, Bill, we're, we uh, do our best to hold payers accountable, but it would seem to me ca- uh, payers have a great deal of interest to show the fidelity to trying to build out what works, which is we know prevention is what ultimately will reduce the burden of these illnesses and the burden on our economy and the burden on our healthcare system. So maybe there's a way in this whole process to give a positive pat on the back to payers that are doing the right thing on crisis response, on early intervention, on school-based mental health. I uh, look forward to kind of working with you on that because I think there's a way for us to both say, yes, on the parity side, you know, you've got a lot of work to do, but listen, it's not without amount of gratitude if you're able to give us kind of an equal amount of money if we can spend it on the uh, social determinants of health. That's a big, big impact on the mental well-being of all Americans if we can do that, although that's not really measured in the parity law, right? It is an issue of parity if you really want to look at the outcomes for people with these illnesses. So maybe there's a way that they can start to up their game on that. And maybe corporations who want to be involved, they'll have a social, governmental, environmental type of mission that says, listen, this is better for us if we get employees that are better able to self-modulate their counterproductive thinking because they got this in school where we don't have to give it to them through their EAP and we don't have to pay for it downstream through their increased medical costs because of their chronic illnesses, which are driven by a lot of uh, mental health underlying conditions. So it's really important that we engage not just government, as you know, which you've really focused on, but obviously these uh, private stakeholders who also have a lot to say on what kind of system we're ultimately going to get. Absolutely. And if you think about the, the private sector has paid attention to the problems in education in our country because they know they've got to have an educated workforce. And, you know, one of the biggest things they talk about is the need for people to have soft skills and all the things that they learn um, that are part of, of mental health and, what, and wellness and what we're talking about. And, you know, what I was hoping with the, uh, the Hopeful Futures campaign, one of the things that we did was to use a report card for every state so that we could measure and improve. And for business people, I think we want to be able to show them the ROI case that we can measure this. We can look what's happening in every state. We can give policymakers the tools to improve these policies and then show that improvement, show the the results and what it means for a better workforce for them and bring them into the conversation. Absolutely. So, you know, like the corporate community pushed STEM education years ago, science, technology and math. And because they said it's an existential issue for our economy as Americans that we're falling behind. And right now, if you were to ask them, what's the analogous to STEM? They probably say, you know, social, emotional learning, coping mechanism development, something along those lines. Because if they're not getting employees that can better manage their, you know, this toxic world that we're living in, they're not going to have employees that are as productive they're employees that are more likely to churn out of employment. That's a huge cost to business. In other words, this is a bottom line issue. It's not about them being depressed 
when they try to get up in the morning, it's about them not being able to go to work. That's the thing that's getting to these employers. Yes, they care about depression, but only so far as it's hitting their bottom line. And now they realize if they don't help, the mental health in this country, our economy is going to be in deep trouble if people are ill, if they're not working at their full capacity. That's why mental health is so important for our economy. It's work that needs to be done. And, and one of the things that is a challenge, but I think an important one for those of us who are doing it is we can get uh, bogged down in things like parity and crisis response and things that, that feel heavy. But at the end of the day, we're in the hope business and we need to act like we're in the hope business because that's what really this is all about at the end of the day. And when we were in the marriage business, we used to say for a long time, we focused on rights and we were in the wrong business. What marriage was really about at the end of the day was love and commitment. People wanting that to be recognized for everybody in their family. And so for me in the mental health space, one of the things I want to do is focus on, yes, there are these policies that we have to change. Sometimes we can get really wonkish, but at the end of the day, what this is all about is hope. And when I think about someone in a mental health crisis, the way I like to frame it is that nobody's worst day should take away their chance to have their best life. So that's what this really is about, because every one of us has had our worst day. We've had bad things that happened. But what you really want is for that not to define you, but for you to have the chance to have your best life. And that's all about hope. Well, we're all on the same page, Bill. Thank you. You are just our light here, our, our ray of light in this mess. I think that a, you give actionable solutions, too, of what a future mental health really could look like and will look like. People like you, what we would say is breaking glass. Well, you're the right guy to lead us there. And Bill, you are the best. And I think all of our listeners now appreciate how much we are fans and why we're such great fans of yours and the work we're doing. And uh, we're going to be there with you along the way. It's great to be with you always. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, drop us a review. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast for the latest episode. For the latest insights, check us out at psychhub.com. <laughs>